electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, corporate and community leaders on social change after protests. CEO of Johnson & Johnson, Alex Gorski, explains what's needed from the boardroom. It's a critical time for our country. It's a critical time, I think, for business to also be speaking out, speaking up about these issues. And reminds leaders that talk isn't enough. Just as in business, when we take on any issue, there should be a plan, there should be objectives, there should be accountabilities, responsibilities. And activist Jeffrey Canada on tackling inequality through education. I think it's time for a massive community uh, infrastructure investment in this country. It's Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin, and continuing our search for solutions to the crises of unrest and inequality in America, and particularly the role of corporate America, the role corporate leaders can play in this. We're joined right now by Alex Gorski. He's the chairman and CEO of Johnson & Johnson. J&J is the world's largest healthcare company. And in a recent letter, Gorski addressed the responsibility of the company to its employees to create a safe and inclusive workplace. And Alex, want to thank you for being with us this morning. Well, Becky, thank you very much for having me on this morning. And uh, really kudos to you, Joe and Andrew, for having this conversation over the past several days about, uh, about racism, about injustice, and its connection to business, to the economy, and frankly, to public policy overall. I think it's a, a very important discussion for us to be having, not only with your business audience, uh, but frankly, with broader America in general. Alex, I've been looking back at at everything you all have been doing over the last several months to to try and fight the coronavirus. And and I know we'll talk to you at some point soon to to get an update on where that stands. But to have these events land in the middle of this, as a CEO, I just wonder how things played out, what you've heard from your employees and and, and why you're going about it um, in terms of how you're addressing it. Sure. Well, Becky, I think, you know, underlying all this, many of these issues are connected uh, and, uh, you know, as we've seen issues obviously play out with the coronavirus over the past uh, several months, and then you put the compounding effect uh, of some of the, again, the recent instances of racism uh, and injustice, uh, you put that together, and it just really, I think, has created a cauldron and, um, and has exposed underlying issues in our country uh, that are very important for us to address. And I know, you know, for me personally and, and across our company, uh, while we've been having discussions for a decade about diversity and inclusion and, and making sure that we're doing our role, not only with our employees, but our communities, um, and, and frankly, having you know, been in my role over eight years and with the company for more than 30, uh, the tone and the tenor of the conversation as of late, I think, has, has definitely reached a, a new level. I mean, like many CEOs have been commenting over the past few days, I've uh, tried to be as connected as I could with the company and... Uh, and frankly, on the phone over the weekend with employees, and uh, to hear some of their stories, uh, especially as of late, um, from you know one of our most senior uh, black leaders, 
you know, have gone to you know, some of the most esteemed schools, uh, serve their country, uh, have significant positions of responsibility, telling stories about, you know, frankly, being concerned over the last few weeks whether their son or daughter could go jogging in their neighborhood without them following behind in a car uh, hit me certainly like, a, a, frankly, a punch in the stomach. And I think it just represents how all these things coming together right now, it's a, it's a critical time for our country. It's a critical time, I think, for business to also be speaking out, speaking up about these issues. Hey, Alex, I, I, I want to focus on what you all are doing at Johnson & Johnson to try and, and do more than just talk about this, too, because it's one thing to have an open and, and honest and frank dialogue. It's another to actually put your money where your mouth is. Let, let's talk about some of the things that you all have done and what your workforce looks like at this point. Talk, talk us through where you've actually kind of put your money where your mouth is on this. Sure, Becky. Well, I, I think the way you introduced it is, is spot on and that I think it needs to be a combination of what are you doing with your heart, so to speak, and what are you doing with your head? And, and what I mean by that is in my discussions with, with again, with many of our leaders and, and frankly, just people in industry that I've been connecting with, I think mission number one needs to be, frankly, creating an understanding of uh, the way these events uh, as of late have landed on the black community. Uh, and again, in, in, in a very personal way and in making sure in many cases, particularly somebody like me as a white male, that we're doing more listening. Uh, and I realize that can be difficult, but I think there's no way that you can just move through a checklist without, I think, demonstrating empathy and an understanding of some of the deep-seated nature and experiences uh, that uh, the community has had and that they're currently experiencing. But I think just listening alone, as you said, isn't enough. And just as in business, when we take on any issue, there should be a plan, there should be objectives, there should be accountabilities, responsibilities. And so that's what we tried to do at Johnson & Johnson. And it starts by having all of our leaders do a credo dialogue. And, and just yesterday, in fact, we had hundreds of these around Johnson & Johnson involving more than thousands of employees where we talk and we, we want to create a safe space where employees can, can bring their authentic selves, have a discussion, uh, and, and frankly have the freedom that they think is necessary to hopefully create a better understanding. But at the same time, we also have introduced several, we think, important steps to make sure that we've got actions aligned behind these values. And, you know, things like making sure that, in our case, as the world's largest healthcare products company, we know that COVID-19 has had a significantly disproportionate effect on the black community and on minority communities. And so we want to go out and we want to find out why is that? What's the underlying nature? What can we do better to make sure that, uh, you know, your zip code isn't making or contributing more to uh, your um, life expectancy, frankly, than other healthcare factors. And so we, we, we're committing more than $50 million. We just recently added 10 more to that to say, what can we be doing in these areas to under, understand that fact better? We're working with all of our suppliers and you know, we work with more than 3000 suppliers around the world. And we're trying to use our size for good and say, what are you doing in some of these areas around diversity and inclusion? How can we share best practices with many of them? Uh, and then, of course, the other thing that we're doing that we're very pleased that we announced, we're going to be 
working uh, with the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And they've got some wonderful programs regarding the history of racism and injustice. And how do we build on some of these on an iconic institution? Uh, and we're going to be doing more than $10 million over the next three years to try not only within Johnson & Johnson, but more broadly in communities to frankly have these discussions and come to a better understanding. Given that this is also a political issue and requires the political will and the public uh, to make significant change, do you think it's your responsibility, the Business Roundtable's responsibility, to speak out directly for or against governors, attorney generals in this country, uh, the, the coming presidential election uh, on this specific issue? Uh, companies lobby, as you know, including your own, uh, on all sorts of issues in Washington. Should this be something that your company is spending money on if you're standing with your employees on this topic? Well, Andrew, that's a great question. And you, know, you and I have had an opportunity to talk over the, the past several years, and particularly about the Business Roundtable's statement about the purpose of a corporation. Uh, and, and frankly, a responsibility to obviously look at the, your fiduciary responsibilities as a company, but also what is the impact that you're having with customers, with consumers? What about more broadly on the communities where you, we're working, where we're participating? What about our employees? And, and having that as a long-term mindset. And it's not, you know, I can remember when we first went out that there was plenty of criticism on both sides. It's not just an either-or framework. It's an and-and framework, particularly as you're looking out for the long-term interests, not only of our companies, but our country and of society in, in general. And when those three work together, clearly that's in everyone's best interest. And, um, and I think in this case, yes, it is incumbent upon business leaders to be speaking out and to be participating in these discussions. You know, there are many areas where business can influence policy. And, uh, and based on discussions that I've been having recently, whether it's educational policy, and some of the great work, for example, that Jenny Rometty and Mary Barra have done in that area about, you know, how do we how do we seize this moment around the rapid transformation about the skills and the capabilities in the workplace? And how do we ensure that our educational system keeps up? And how do we use, frankly, some of the experience that we have and capabilities and influencing in Washington around that important agenda? Because that's good for society, but that's also going to be very important for companies. But there are other issues related to social injustice. There are certainly areas related to healthcare. It's been one very important for us at Johnson & Johnson. We can bring great technology uh, and great new life-saving measures to bear. But frankly, if patients don't have access, uh, if, they, if, they, if it's not affordable, then that also creates issues. And, and last but not least, capital allocation. How do we get better access to capital? And whether it's purchasing a home, whether it's saving, whether it's just frankly financial education, I think these kind of these are areas where organizations like the Business Roundtable can influence policy in very important ways. That's frankly, in the, again, in the best interests of our country as well as business and society. The coronavirus and the economic impact of the coronavirus are, are, are taking a much bigger impact on um, not only communities of color but all communities in need. Uh, those who are the hardest off are the ones that are getting hardest hit. What, what can business leaders do to try and address that, that particular problem? And, 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 and what would you suggest to, to your peers? Look, what I would suggest to my peers, uh, and, and frankly, I think are important points of discussion today, are we've got to make sure that we're getting support 
for where it's most needed. And look, while you and I can have this conversation today, um, you know, these of these Zoom and many of workers in large organizations are able to continue. Uh, if we look at 50% of the economy that uh, frankly has a hard time if, uh, if even able to come up with a $500 check to take care of a bill, or if we look at the part of the economy, it's a small businesses that uh, is paying tomorrow's bills with today's receipts. Clearly, those have got to be priorities for us, particularly as we continue to maneuver through this period. So as we think about CARES 4, as we think about you know ongoing uh, financial assistance, I think making it sure we're getting it to those frontline workers uh, who are likely most exposed uh, is going to remain critical. And I think secondly, we've got to make sure that the small businesses who are employing so many of those people uh, are also getting the help and the assistance that they, they need uh, at the same time. Because, you know, frankly, without, without that kind of support, we're not going to have the confidence in the economy going forward. It, it will have a disproportionate share. We know that from all the statistics on minority communities. And uh, so over the next several months, we've got to make sure that uh, we're really focusing on those two particular segments of the economy. Alex, I want to thank you for your time today. Obviously, this is an, an issue that you're going to continue to focus on. We will, too. Um, so we appreciate your time, and we look forward to updates from you. Thank you very much, Becky. Next on Squawk Pod, the president of the Harlem Children's Zone, Jeffrey Canada, on the role of education in battling racial inequality. I've spent my life trying to figure out what are the solutions uh, for our most struggling urban communities. And next steps for opening schools in the fall. We've got to protect our teachers and our students. And then you know what? I think there are ways to do it if we begin to plan on doing that right now. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Inequality bubbles beneath efforts to resolve America's current crises, and some organizations are tackling solutions at the very early levels of education. Today, we're highlighting our conversation with Jeffrey Canada, president of the Harlem Children's Zone. More than a school, HCZ is a comprehensive strategy to provide education and social service support to attack the cycle of poverty in one of America's best-known urban neighborhoods. At work for almost 30 years, Harlem Children's Zone has been called one of America's most ambitious social policy experiments of our time by the New York Times. Support begins at birth and helps kids every step of their education until ideally college graduation. It also includes social services, health and community building programs for families in Harlem. Community building from neighborhoods to the biggest corporations in America is an issue we've been tackling all this week on our three-hour morning show and on our podcast. We've had a lot of conversations with business leaders as Americans respond to unrest driven by frustration, illness, and history. Earlier this week on Squawk Box, BET founder Bob Johnson called on the government to provide $14 trillion in reparations for slavery. We need to focus on wealth creation and wealth generation. And to do that, we must bring the descendants of 
slaves into equality with this nation. And that's what I proposed in this $14 trillion proposal to provide reparations, not only for the sin or the atonement of the sin of slavery and Jim Crowism and desegregation, both de facto and de jure, but to cause America to live up to the concept and the notion that this nation was born on the idea of American exceptionalism. Here's Joe Kernan with Jeffrey Canada on education's role in targeting systemic racism and inequality. Here we are again uh, trying to deal with some of the same issues uh, little by little. Um, it, with the backdrop that we're seeing, and, and I, don't, I know you've probably heard of some of uh, Bob Johnson's comments about reparations uh, and the like, you've been doing it organically for years and years and years, and, and I think Bob expressed some frustration that it's just going too slow or it's just hard to see big strides being made and we need to be we need to act big right now what, what are your comments what should we do well, well look first of all joe thank you for having me on because i've spent my life trying to figure out what are the solutions uh for our most struggling urban communities uh, places where, because of racism and uh, poor schools and uh, a sense of hopelessness and despair, communities have given up. Uh, and when communities give up, uh, they often do self-destructive things. Uh, so we have rebuilt the community in Harlem. Uh, and I think it's time for a massive community uh, infrastructure investment in this country. Uh, we know that different zip codes, even within uh, the same community, you have really different outcomes for kids. And income inequality is real in these places. And you can't just do one thing. Look, I'm an educator, uh, and you know I believe that schools have to deliver for children. But this is more than just schools. Uh, we've got to rebuild the health system, the mental health system. We've got to help with housing uh, and make sure that the parks and the playgrounds are, are safe places for our kids and families to go. Uh, I've spent my life doing this at the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, we see a movement around this country uh, for folks doing these cradle-to-career strategies right. to rebuild communities. And I think we really need to now invest serious money in these kinds of strategies. It's hard work. It's hard work, and it's detail-oriented, and as you say, it's from it's cradle all the way to, to the workforce, uh, probably. And and it's not it's not going to be simple, Jeffrey. And it's not going to be uh, a, a one-size-fits-all solution to all these things. And kids, you know, you got to the school is the most important thing. But then they go home from school, they leave school, they go to home, they go to playgrounds, they go so many different places, and and hopelessness. If it's if you're surrounded by it, there's it, just it's not going to matter if you if you got good teachers in good schools. You don't think you're ever going to get out. So it, it, it's 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 so intractable, though, Jeffrey. That's why everyone's so frustrated, I think. Well, you know, it, it, it takes it takes time and it takes resources. Uh, I think, you know, some of the folks who helped us do this, Stan Druckenmiller, Ken Langone, who's on with you guys all the time. Uh, this is the business community and those of us in not for profits coming together and saying, look, we care about these places, and we're going to prepare to spend the time. But, but, Joe, this is the difference. But we're also prepared to hold ourselves accountable. You've got to deliver results. And we don't need investments that end up not helping anybody or actually producing the kind of outcomes we care about for kids. Uh, and we now know we can do that. 
We're not the only place in the country doing it. There are places around the country, uh, Strive, uh, which is doing that in multiple places, uh, purpose-built communities. There are groups of us who've decided this is the way you deal with real poverty and income inequality. You target neighborhoods and you do it comprehensively and you spend the time doing it, but you hold yourself accountable at the same time. If we don't deliver, don't support us, don't give us the resources, because it has to be a contract that says, you give us the resources and we'll improve those outcomes for those young people. So, Jeff, it, it's, you got great work in the, center, you know, in the, the, the midsection of Harlem, but is this scalable? Is it scalable and, and what would it take to yeah. do it everywhere? And just as a, as a point of, uh, of reference, uh, Bob Johnson's uh, proposal would be about $14 trillion, and it would put ownership, asset ownership, into every descendant of a slave would have $360,000 or, or something. So that's $14 trillion. I can imagine that, that you could do this for, for less than that, but it's still not going to be cheap if it was scalable to go everywhere this needs to be done and, and to get the people to do it and everything else. They have to be part private, part public. Uh, taxes, uh, philanthropy, and, and, and everything else. But, you know, you know what's so interesting, Joe, is that uh, we're, we're doing it for about $3,000 a child per year, and people used to think that was expensive. Uh, it turns out that's one of the best bargains that you can get in this country. We've got over 950 of our kids in college. Uh, we've graduated more than 700 kids. We are ending that cycle of poverty, but you're right. It does take real resources, and it does take the kind of time. Uh, I believe that the same forces of, of really, uh, you know, capitalism at work, where you have uh, jobs and young people prepared for those jobs and the ability to uh, live up to the expectations of your talent, uh, that's going to work for the African-American community the same way it's worked for other communities. And the truth is there's been an intentional disinvestment in these communities. Look, we're at the 99th anniversary of the Greenwood massacre and what happened there in Greenwood, uh, Oklahoma. And we need to remember that this has been a systematic strategy for decades that has to be undone. So, yes, there's frustration. Yes, there's anger. Yes, there's evidence that uh, we have been living in a set of this uh, proportionately unequal circumstances if you're African-American, Latino, Native American in this country. But I, I'm not despairing. We've actually figured out some ways to work, and we need to go and make sure we scale those efforts around the country. Hey, Jeffrey, uh, I agree with you 110 percent. Let me just ask you this, though. Um, intentions are so high, and, and, and we are dealing with a dual crisis, of course, because this is, we're also dealing with COVID at, at this time. And I have a very practical question with you, in part because this COVID situation has disproportionately uh, impacted uh, people in your community, which is we got to get schools back and up and running. we got to get schools back up and running because we need to get America back up and running. Uh, and there's a big debate, as you know, among teachers, teachers' unions, others, about how to do that, how to do it safely, who should come back, who shouldn't come back. Um, from a very practical perspective in terms of getting, getting this country back on its feet and getting, uh, getting people to work, which is so important in all communities, frankly, um, what are you hearing, what are you thinking, what do you know on that front? 
Well, look, look, you've raised the question that I think folks have not been paying much attention to. America can't go back to work unless our schools are open uh, because parents need those schools to have their kids in a safe place during the day while they're working. And I've been disappointed uh, that we are not convening the same kind of intellectual capacity around education that we are around fighting this virus. Now, look, uh, we've learned a lot about how to keep uh, people alive. We're not intubating people as much as we used to be because we found out, even though we thought that was helping, it's actually making things worse. We need right now to be taking the same kind of scientific uh, ideology to figure out how we open our schools. Uh, who do we bring back first? How do we do social distancing? How do we protect our most vulnerable children and our most vulnerable teachers? Uh, we need to be practicing those strategies this summer so that by the time the fall comes, we can actually open up these schools with a real sense of safety. Everybody's scared. We're, we're allowing people to make it up all over everywhere uh, where we should be studying what they're doing in uh, South Korea, what they're doing in Japan, what they're doing in places that are opening up schools and doing so safely and how we begin to make sure we can test and segregate kids and families uh, when they become infected so we don't have to close down the whole schools again. Uh, this is very serious business. And we're distracted by all of the noise and we're not spending time figuring this out. Our schools must open, but they have to do it safely. And we've got to protect our teachers and our students. And then you know what? I think there are ways to do it if we begin to plan on doing that right now. For example, why not think about using churches and other institutions that aren't uh, filled during the day so that we can uh, reduce the number of kids uh, in our schools uh, so that we can protect uh, our kids from being so clustered together that the virus can spread from child to child to child? Well, guess what? That's going to take resources. Uh, this is a time when the states are thinking about cutting budgets. And we cannot have the education budgets cut right now while we're trying to figure out how to reopen these schools and get our economy started again. So we need to bring the best and brightest together to start really putting science to work and figuring out how we answer right. this question. Because it you, must be answered. Jeffrey, do you have hope that we're going to have school in the fall? I mean, have you found is there a model out there? Are there experts out there that you've talked to that have given you confidence and comfort that they're is a way, especially in New York, which has been so hard hit, and I think where there's, where there's less confidence if, in truth about this, give us yeah, some confidence, got, perhaps, or not. We, we've got to tackle some tough problems, right? A lot of our kids take public transportation back and forth to schools when they get older. Uh, it's easier in the elementary schools with parents often, and you're walking back and forth to schools. But look, it's the same problem that our workforce is going to face. And we've got to start thinking about things differently. Uh, we're going to have to uh, try to figure out what's the science tell us uh, that we can use to reopen the schools. And do I have confidence that we can do it? Well, yes, I do. Uh, but do I think that uh, we're going to face potentially a second wave uh, in the fall? And we've got to think about when it happens. How do we not close down everything again? Uh, and we're going to have to do that unless we can figure out how to isolate groups of kids so that they're not in contact with other groups within these buildings. So if a kid gets sick or infected, uh, we won't have to close down the whole school. Uh, this is going to be complicated. It is. But we've got to figure it out. But let me tell you what I'm worried about. 
No one's thinking about it in a real scientific way right now, as if it's not the key to reopening our economy. So we need smart people to begin to plan this. In our urban centers, it's going to be much more complicated. Uh, but I do believe it can be done if we're thinking about it and planning it and using the summer to actually practice how you bring folks in and how you keep them safe and how you teach our kids how to socially distance. There are yep. examples out there we can follow. Uh, Jeffrey, I'm going to bring you back. I, it, it, proof of concept. We just got to get it scalable. And, and it, you know, get, that, that does give me hope. And, and uh, it, it, you've proved it can be done. Thank you. We appreciate you, you coming on today. Thanks for having me. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod. If you like listening to this podcast, please share with friends and tell us what you think. We're on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.